the, then the thing that really sets me off is, well, once we have a vaccine, then everything will go back, back to, to normal. normal. Yeah. And I say, you mean like the flu vaccine that's 8% effective? Doesn't work. I catch I mean, if I had a brake pad manufacturing company for cars and my brake pads were 8% effective, I would be out of business. George Floyd was not taken out because he was black. George Floyd was taken out because he was owed major drug money by Derek Shaver. You're making vaccines that are 8% effective for the flu that you have to change every year, which, by the way, give most people that take them the flu. Mm -hmm. And you're going to tell me that this new, and they can't sue, you can't sue them for this without going through the VAERS court, which is a joke. And you're going to tell me that once we have a untested, brand new, rushed through vaccine, then everything is going to go back to normal? Good luck with that. I'll tell you what, they're going to test it in Africa, like they're doing, kill a bunch of Africans, pay them off $1,000 per person, which is the maximum that they have to spend if they kill somebody. So they already know that because it's way cheaper to kill them there than kill them here. Found out what the Chinese Communist Party, the Red Dragon, is doing to these people and have been doing to these people for the last 20 years in China, sending hundreds and thousands of innocent Falun Gong practitioners, Uyghur Muslims, house Christians, and Tibetan Buddhists. Particularly, 95% of um, the victims are Falun Gong practitioners to be state-mandated hospitals, concentration camps, death camps, military facilities, uh, military facilities run by the Chinese military at the behest of the, of the highest-ranking officials of the Chinese Communist Party to create a illegal sanctions forced organ harvesting business. Hey, how's it going, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of the Truth Defender Podcast. We are coming to you from the greatest country in the world, deep in the heart of the Lone Star State, Dallas, Texas. I am your host, Paul Aguilar. We really appreciate you guys stopping in once again for another episode. If you guys are catching us on YouTube and you aren't already a subscriber, please consider hitting that subscribe button as well as that uh, turn on that bell icon and giving us a thumbs up. That'll really help us out. If you guys are on the go and you want to check us out, you can find us on Spotify, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, as well as iHeartRadio at Truth Defender Podcast. We'll have all the links to social media linked down below, uh, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, Rumble, Discord. We even have a locals.com for you guys if you want to catch us there. Uh, if you guys have any questions or comments for myself or our guests, uh, guest or topic recommendations, you can shoot us an email at truthdefender1776 at gmail.com. Our next guest is Mr. Kenemi. Kenemi is a longtime researcher and lecturer on issues pertaining to worldview philosophies and various sorts of religions. In this capacity, he has posted thousands of articles on his website and has been published in Apologetics Journal and has been interviewed by a wide range of radio and podcast programs. You can find his work at truefreethinker.com where you can also find his books. Uh, without further ado, Mr. Kenemi, how are you doing, sir? I really appreciate you stopping in. Um, I really appreciate it. So we've been trying to do this kind of, I guess, for almost a year. I think we kind of spoke to each other a while back and then things just kind of didn't pan out for whatever reason. And then uh, now we're here again. So, you know, better late than never, but, you know, we finally got on. So that's, I really yes, appreciate sir. it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, so I guess, can we kind of start off by... I guess giving us a little background on how you kind of got into the whole topic. I mean, I'm sure it was like most of us just hearing stories about 
the Nephilim and giants and such. Um, it's obviously something that's extremely interesting, just, you know, kind of off the top, but, you know, what, what kind of drove you to kind of dive in a little deeper on it? Right. So my background is one of being interested in the world's mysteries. I don't know if people remember the old Pine Life books about the mysteries of the world and cryptozoology and UFOs and all that kind of stuff. Uh, so that's as far back as I can remember, I was interested in ascertaining the actual true truth and then reading about um, all that kind of stuff at the public library and, like I said, getting those specialized books. And so that was around sixth grade is when I was really just going to the library devouring that stuff. So a few years later, here I am, and it's no surprise that I ended up doing what I like to term specializing in um, systematic biblical paranormology. So I'm thinking, okay, there's God, right? And there's the earth dwellers, but then there's that whole in-between realm. And that's what really interested me. And so I started researching what the Bible had to say about uh, all of those beings. And I find that one of the issues, when you really start specializing in a certain theological topic, you find that most of what is said about it in common parlance and just pop level discussions is, yeah, you know, I mean, it's good enough to get by, but it's very unspecific. Sure. And so when I really try to push the specificity of the issues, um, it's funny how I meet with so much resistance based on basically, well, but common knowledge says this and who are you to say otherwise? And I'm just trying to reason with people. It's kind of been, a really interesting experience because when I end up writing my books about this kind of stuff, I'm not just an armchair researcher. I actually take my views into the cyber realm and I'll discuss them with literally dozens and dozens and hundreds of people. And so then my views get tested and they either pass the test or I have to revise them. So what you end up in my books is really, uh, hopefully, really refined stuff that is going to kind of help you walk through what are some of the issues that people would bring up and how to deal with them. Sure. And yeah. now, well, that just to emphasize one more thing. Mm-hmm. Um, generally on these issues, what you get at the pop level, um, I refer to them as pop researchers, right? Uh, the big names and who are out there talking on Nephilim and Giants. Um, I mean, I call it neo-theo sci-fi because it's really exciting stuff. I could listen to it all day. And it's if they were just admitting that they were doing sci-fi, I would love it. But they're claiming to do real theology. So then it's incumbent upon people like me to say, well, hold on a minute. Let's, uh, let's go step by step and just figure out if what you're saying is actually accurate, especially biblically accurate. And uh, in a lot of cases, you find it's not. And then I just notice patterns, like there's just basic level errors people make, like at the, at the, at the level of premise. Hmm. So then when they carry their argument along, and especially when they reach a con- conclusion, you're like, well, wait a minute. I see how you reached the faulty conclusion, really, because you started with a faulty premise. And it's kind of really easy to do that with a topic as gigantic as Nephilim and Giants, especially because we're told so precious little about them in the Bible and even outside the Bible. Right. 
Yeah, I mean, we can all kind of remember stories since we were little about giants and such. It's, it's, um, you know, so, I mean, how many books do you have on the topic of Nephilim and giants at, at this moment? It depends how you count them. I'd say seven or nine. Okay. Yeah. So, so I did see one of them was the, uh, it was titled Nephilim and giants as per pop researchers. So that would kind of lead into, you know, exactly what you were saying now, but, but so I guess, can you kind of explain the difference of what, of how you kind of come to the story of the Nephilim and giants and to kind of what's out there and how everybody else kind of, I guess you would say, mm, I, how would you say it? I, I guess tries to exaggerate claims or maybe make up claims that aren't actually there so you hit the nail on the head you refer to nephilim and giants so you're distinguishing the two and i mean some people say nephilim giants that's how they say it and that's an issue we might have to discuss but it's important to recognize for one just at the most basic level right nephilim is a very specific hebrew word giants is a vague generic subjective multi-usage and undefined english word so that alone is important to, to think about when someone says giant first thing i do is say what do you mean by that because i could think of like five six different definitions and also the definition or meaning of a word could be very different than its usage at any given time Right. If you think about the, the word allow, uh, allow used to mean um, to suffer, <laughs> right? Um, where now it means to give permission to do something, right? right? Or um, I actually think I got that the other word around. It's, it's uh, suffering. Hmm. Suffering <laughs> used to mean to allow. Okay. Now it means experiencing something unpleasant, right? That's why you hear like about the, the early 1900s, the women's suffrage movement, right? It's because they wanted certain rights. They wanted to be allowed to vote and things like that. Or Jesus says, suffer the little children to come on to me in the older versions, right? right. Well, what does that mean? Suffer them? Well, yeah, it, it just means to allow them. And and so that that's an, an, an important thing to keep in mind. Um, so, the biblical story of Nephilim is so uninteresting and unsexy uh, that that's why I'm not getting invited to present any lectures at these big conferences <laughs> or paid attention to by these guys, because I'm going to tell you a really boring story. And well, that's all. And I'm going to say period, full stop, end. So the, <laughs> the biblical story of Nephilim is that before the flood, Sons of God mated with the daughters of men. As far as the sons of God, I take the angel view, as it's known, that the sons of God refers to angel, angels. And I wrote an entire book, just uh, historically, who took which view on that from BC days to AD days, almost a thousand years worth of commentaries. And the angel view is definitely the original, the traditional, and the majority view amongst both Jews and Christians. So that's where I uh, would... Um, at my premise, and backed by scripture, of course. Um, so they mate, they, uh, their offspring are called Nephilim. So we know their parentage, sons of God and daughters of men. We know that was pre-flood. And we know Nephilim were mighty. We don't know why, but they were mighty. 
and they're men of renown. So they, they were well known. Again, we don't know why, but they were well known. Okay, since that's pre-flood, and only Noah and some animals and survived the flood, and of course Noah's family. By definition, they didn't survive the flood, period, full stop. Okay, now, did they return? That's a separate question. Maybe they didn't survive the flood, but did they, they return in some way? Well, that's also not scriptural. Um, now, some people have concocted uh, various neo-theosci-fi tales about how they did return, or they did survive, in fact. A lot of people claim that to me. It just doesn't exist in the Bible. So uh, they lived pre-flood. They were parented by sons of God, daughters of men. They were white, uh, mighty and well-known. They, the last of them died in the flood, period, full stop, end of story, done. Okay, now then... The issue is that you have a reference to them post-flood. So what's up with that, right? right. And, and that reference is the reason that people then invent tall tales about how they made it, how they either survived or returned. Right. Now, we have about five scriptures that make it clear Noah, his family, and animals survived the flood. So they didn't. That's just, you're going to flatly contradict the scripture straight out at least five times if you say they survived. So, but what about a return? Well, there's no such thing stated in the Bible that they returned, but all of a sudden there's a reference to them. So that they made it through genetically and one of the daughters or one of the wives of Noah's sons. That's a theory. That's not biblical, but it's a theory. That more angels fell post-flood and did it all again. That's a theory. It's not biblical, but it's a theory. (laughs) Or any other kind of uh, what's popular nowadays is claiming that there was some kind of ritual whereby you could sort of um, make your own Nephilim right at home, you know, do it yourself. Uh, Fresh baked Nephilim. (laughs) Um, So the, the issue to deal with, and I don't know into how much detail you want me to go about that post-flood reference to Nephilim. I could bore you with details. So you let me know, should I just kind of plow through it or, or just kind of go step by step? No, sure. Yeah, we can go through it. I mean, it's like you said, uh, there's, if they you know, actually did die off during the flood, you know, I would kind of want to know where it was referenced and, and how it's come about to where people think that they might've existed afterwards. That's all kind of, interesting and i would like to know where that comes from as well okay now how about we start here even if we consider apocryphal books and also pseudepigraphical books so in other words books that are not in the canon of the bible but that are from bc days so they're either apocrypha or pseudepigrapha Uh, pseudepigrapha is just a way to say that they were written during the second temple era which was about roughly 327 BC till 70 AD. So for whatever reason, scholars like to come up with fancy names. So they call those apocryphal texts pseudepigraphic. Okay, whatever. Uh, (laughs) Even if you consider those, the only place you're going to get post-flood Nephilim is in Jubilees. And then they only make it to the time of Noah's grandsons. So that would be the end of them in that text. Then in First Enoch, a.k.a. Ethiopic Enoch, you don't have physical post-flood Nephilim. What you have is that the spirits of dead Nephilim are unclean spirits, or 
what we today would call demons. Okay, and I think that's a pretty fair guess. I mean, I consider it folklore, and I have a theory about who and what demons are that is a lot more biblical than that, but that's just to lay out the groundwork. That's pretty much what you're going to get. So then when we look at uh, Numbers chapter 13, a common error is, and I've had this done to me, I'm not even kidding, hundreds of times people say, Numbers 13.33 records that they were post-flood Nephilim. Let's run away and move on from that. Like, whoa, hold on a minute. <laughs> hold on a minute. For one, a reference does not mean actually on the ground existing, right? It's something that is being referenced, So that's something important right there, because it's really not good enough to say, well, the Bible says, or Moses wrote. Well, the issue is, well, what was being said? Who said it? Is there anything to back what they said? What was the reaction to it, right? These are all the questions that, like I I mentioned at the intro, these are the kind of questions I'm going to be asking, because I'm actually interested in going beyond the exciting stuff, and I want to know, well, is it really there? So, sure. We need to interact with the narrative. We can't just pick up one single verse and run with it and turn it into whatever we want, right? So this is a chapter that's well, really well known where Moses sends spies into the land of Canaan, right? Before the people enter it. And they reconnoiter the land. They're, they're spying it out and they come back to the congregation. And then they give uh, what I call the original report. So they're saying... Uh, they brought back word to them and all the congregation and showed them the fruit of the land. And they told them, we came to the land to which you sent us. It flows with milk and honey, and this is its fruit. Let's pause just a second, okay? If you saw the most awe-inspiring beings on the planet, is the first thing you would talk about when you got back to camp really, hey, check out this fruit, I mean, wouldn't you be like, OMG, you'd never believe what we saw, you know? Yeah. So just on a common sense level, I'm just saying that's, it's a little suspect. Let's just leave it at that. That the first thing is, hey, check out the fruit. Oh, the land is nice, you know? (laughs) Okay. That's just slightly odd. And so then they go uh, on to say directly from there. However, the people who dwell in the land are strong and the cities are fortified and very large. Okay, now we're going to find out in a second that this bothered the people who heard it. And to me, it makes sense because at this time, the Israelites are itinerant, right? They're moving around the wilderness. They live in tents. Now they're being told, hey, guess what? You're going to have to confront multiple people groups that are all strong, (laughs) and they live in cities, and they're fortified cities, and very large cities. Yeah, you ragged, you band of tent dwellers, you're going to have to do that. So they were concerned about that. Okay, and then then they go on to say directly, and besides, we saw the descendants of Anak there, right, the Anakim. The Amalekites dwell in the land of Negev, the Hittites, the Jebusites, and the Amorites dwell in hill country, and the Canaanites dwell by the sea and along the Jordan. Okay. Now, notice that this is the original report. It's accepted as is. It mentions one, two, three, four, five, six people groups. 
did you hear anything about Nephilim in there? Nope. Nothing. Okay. So that's at least odd. How come they're listing all the people groups they saw? Nephilim aren't mentioned. All right. We'll go on directly. So now that's the report, the original one. Next verse, but Caleb quieted the people before Moses, right? Because obviously, like I said, they were, obviously their reaction was that they were concerned. And he said, let us go up at once to occupy it, for we are well able to overcome it. So Caleb's just get her done. You know, this is nothing. Right? The Lord right. commanded us to do this. <laughs> yeah. You know, and you might be a redneck if you think that GED stands for get her done. No, sorry. Almost made you spit out your water there, huh? <laughs> oh, I was this close. Yeah, yeah. It was accidental. I guarantee you the timing there. Okay. Uh, now, right after Caleb gives this encouragement, then the men who had gone up with him said, okay, so there were 12 spies. Um, so now it's Caleb, and we end up finding out Joshua sided with him against the 10. So the man who had gone up with us said, we are not able to go against these people for they are stronger than we. Okay, so right there, at the very least, you can say these guys are unfaithful and disloyal. So they're discouraging from doing what God commanded them to do. So that's extremely serious. All right. Now the narrative tells us, so they brought up to the people of Israel a bad report sometimes translated evil report of the land that they had spied out saying so now first they're discouraging and now we're told specifically now what they're going to say is bad or evil or however you want to translate it so here's what they say the land through which we have gone to spy it out is a land that devours its inhabitants okay hold on a minute now the original report had the land as flowing with milk and honey and had wonderful fruit, so much so that they're showing it off. Uh, so that's a straight up contradiction right there, just flat out. And then they go on to say, all the people that we saw in it are of great height. Hmm, well, that's interesting because the original report had it that the people there were strong. And even in their discouragement, they said they are stronger than we. So all of a sudden, they decide to throw in something about great height. So at the very least, we could say that that's an embellishment. At the very least. Okay. And now, dun, 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 here comes the key verse. And there we saw the Nephilim. Okay. But remember, we said that there were various people groups listed. So to me, this is just another embellishment. No one mentioned this before. All of a sudden, when you are trying to justify your cowardice, your unfaithfulness, your disloyalty, all of a sudden, you're going to claim you saw Nephilim. And then they say something that's generally translated to the likes of the sons of Anak come from the Nephilim. So they're claiming the Anakim are related to Nephilim which is nowhere else in the whole entire Bible, period. That, that's just something that's unjustifiable beyond this one single verse. And then we seem to ourselves like grasshoppers, and so we seem to them. Now, if you recall, incidentally, Genesis 6, the pre-flood reference to Nephilim, and that's it, by the way. 
you get Genesis 6, 4 and Numbers 13, 33. You don't even get to texts about Nephilim. You get to verses, period. So if you recall, it didn't give us a physical description of them. So this is all we have in terms of all the claims that they were very, very, very tall biblically. This is all you have. And so you have um, unfaithful, disloyal, contradictory, embellishing in a report where they make five assertions that aren't backed by any single other scripture whatsoever. Um, so that would be that the land is bad, the, the residents inhabitants, the people are all of great height. They saw Nephilim, Anakim are related to them, Nephilim are very, very tall. Those five things don't exist anywhere else in the whole entire Bible, period. Period, full stop. So if you want to believe those things, you're either going to have to rely on some of the most unreliable guys in the whole entire Bible, or you're going to have to say, well, but the narrative is begging for me to understand that these guys were up against the wall and they just made up a don't go in the woods type of tall tale. Don't, don't go in the land, everybody. This is what we saw. And, and there's other, other things as well. So for example, remember that uh, earlier in the chapter, we found out where the Anakim were living. In the original report, we're told where the Amalekites dwell in the Negev, Hittites, Jebusites, Amorites dwell in the hill country. Canaanites dwell by the sea along the Jordan. But here, the reference to Nephilim is just vague. It's like, yeah, we saw them. Right. There's no specificity as to where, which is like a missing data point. You, you see, I'm trying to be like very generous about this, but it's just none of it works. Uh, and there's there's other problems as well. I'll just mention a few more because, man, I could just keep going on this. But uh, the reference to Anakim in this verse is generally considered to be a gloss. That is, scholars, don't you know? They generally think that that was just inserted in a manuscript somewhere along the way to just try to understand uh, or explain why in Deuteronomy 1, or a 2 rather, Deuteronomy 2, we're told that Anakim are tall. Okay, now the word tall is as subjective as the word giant or big or large or great height. It's all subjective. So this is subjective to Israelites, males of whom in those days average five foot, maybe five three. Yeah. So, you know, to them, somebody who's tall could be like six and a half feet. Seven would definitely be tall. And so you have to really think about that. What does that mean? Um, and the, the reason scholars think that mostly is because in the Septuagint and the LXX and the Greek translation of the Hebrew text from like 300 B.C., there's no reference to Anakim in this verse. It's just not there. It's just we saw Nephilim and they're very tall, pretty much. That's what it says. And then if you look at Deuteronomy 1, Moses is retelling this event. He's reminding people of it. And what he points out is that those guys, these 10 unreliable spies, were scaring them and talked to them about Anakim. He doesn't even mention Nephilim. To him, it's like, it's a non-issue. <laughs> Moses is concerned about the real-life foes that they're going to face, which are people like the Anakin. Right. Uh, so he doesn't even mention Nephilim. So, I mean, how many different ways does a text have to beg you to understand that there's no reason 
to accept this. Not oh, oh, a slight one other thing. God rebukes these guys. He rebukes them with extreme prejudice. They literally die at his rebuke. And I mean, seriously, um, on top of that, I told you, I got a bunch of this. On top of that, what they're saying contradicts Moses, Caleb, Joshua, God, and the rest of the Bible. Because all of those affirm, yeah, Anakim were in the land. None None of them say a single word about Nephilim, nor of relation to them ever, not once, whatsoever so the decision is you're either gonna go with moses caleb joshua god and the rest of the bible or you're gonna go with unfaithful disloyal contradictory embellishers whom god rebuked i mean it's that simple and so the issue is that when people just accept this verse and they turn it into this all-encompassing theory about post-flood nephilim then it becomes a hermeneutic to them, right? It becomes the mode whereby they then interpret or misinterpret other verses and they kind of force them to be saying something they're not. And that's kind of how they end up with a big all-encompassing theories because they're pulling other stuff into it that just doesn't belong. So for example, um, they'll pull in Genesis 6-4 because it says those days and afterwards. So if you want to talk about that, I'm going to just catch my breath and see what you have to say. For sure, no worries. Yeah, so, I mean, I guess, obviously, for, I guess, what would, what would so let me see, let me try to start, start over again. So what are the biggest claims of the Nephilim and, and giants, you know, after the flood? I mean, what are, like, some of the, like, the biggest ones that people kind of point to or say, here's proof and here's, you know, why we say this and why we say that. I mean, obviously, other than for profit, why would they say these kinds of things? You know, maybe they just kind of, are they just trying to sell books or where are they kind of getting these claims from? So one thing is whether they're trying to sell books, that's the sort of thing I can't say because I don't know their motivations. I don't know their thoughts. I can only tell you if what they're telling us is accurate or not. But, you know, this does ultimately come down to spiritual warfare. That's what we're fighting. So this is a deception, a psyop from millennia ago, and it's still uh, active today. It's the same blinders. It's the same acceptance of a deception uh, spiritually that's going on. So for one, okay, let's deal with Genesis 6-4 because we're told, and Again, I've been told hundreds of times, Genesis 6-4 says that there were Nephilim before the flood and after the flood. Well, guess what? It doesn't say that. The flood isn't even mentioned for the very first time until verse 17. That's 13 verses later. Okay. So what does it say? It says Nephilim will, were in the earth in those days and also afterward when the sons of God came to the daughters of men and they bore children to them. Now, I would submit to you that if you were not prepped to think in terms of post-flood Nephilim in Numbers 13, maybe you wouldn't necessarily think, oh, wait a minute, this is saying that they were around before and after. So again, let's take the narrative for what it is. It's telling us they were around in those days and also after that when the sons of God came into the daughters of men and bore children to them. So then the question becomes, okay, well, when was that? 
when did they do that? Uh, well, verse 1 told us, when men began to multiply on the face of the earth and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were attracted. They took them wives, um, any they chose. Okay, well, then the question becomes, when was that? Well, I have no idea. It's whenever men began to multiply on the face of the earth and daughters were born to them. Could have been as early as when Adam and Eve's children started having children. But the point is that those days are when the sons of God came in to the daughters of men, which was when men began to multiply on the face of the earth and daughters were born to them. Okay? It's right there in the text. I don't have to jump a few books forward to get that. That's right there. And so then when was after that? Afterward. Well, afterward is after the sons of God came to the daughters of men and children were born to them. That's it. It's just after that, after when they first started. So after when men began to multiply in the face of the earth and daughters were born to them, they kept doing it. And maybe they kept doing it and doing it and doing it. But the point is that was our pre-flood. The flood would have brought that to a full and final end, period. So again, we're looking at a text that's telling us how to understand it. You're not hearing me pulling anything out of anywhere. I'm just saying, look, there's, there's the answer. There's the answer. There's the answer. When exactly they first did it is slightly vague, but still, that's not even that relevant because we know it's pre-flood when they first did it, and then they kept doing it. But then the flood just brings a, an end to the whole entire thing uh, to the point that um, Jude and Second Peter chapter 2 tell us that the angels who sinned were incarcerated. Okay, they don't tell us when exactly, but it would make sense that that was part of their punishment. So when the flood came and wiped out the earth dwellers, then angels who are not necessarily earth dwellers would have been incarcerated then. And that would explain why you don't have any post-flood reference to any kind of fall of angels. It was a one-time deal. And so this is just one of those cases where you can't taint your interpretation of Genesis 6 because you read all the way to Numbers 13 and now you want Genesis 6 to say something it's not saying. Right. Yeah, and it so could it, could it also be, I guess, people lose kind of track when they try to like interpret it. So say like when they try to, how to say, um, so like when they rewrote the Bible, like in other languages, did they, did they kind of leave stuff out or did they just not get the translations? Does that have like any kind of part in, in any of it as well? Or is that just kind of, you know, um, people making only, up stuff? Yeah, that's a, that is an extremely <laughs> interesting question. A very, very good point. Um, I know eventually we're going to have to talk about Goliath and Og. So mm. just to keep that in uh, Sure. Keep that uh, triggered, you know. Um, okay. The Septuagint, I think, played a huge role in part of the confusion we're dealing with today. And that's because it rendered, not even translated, it rendered the Hebrew term Nephilim and also Giborim, 
and also Rephaim, all of them as gigantes. Hmm. Okay, and now you don't have to know anything about linguistics or translation to realize it's generally just a bad idea to render three very different words using just one word. Sure. Yeah, it's just not a good idea, right? Uh, Refa, Gibor, uh, Nephil, very different sounds, very different looks, and just to render them all. I see my internet connections unstable oh. is what I'm being told. So I'm making sure yeah. I'm not freezing up or something. <laughs> no, you're good. I got you back now. Yeah, you were for a little okay. bit, but we're good now. Okay, so the point is that's why the word, it, the English word giant is in some Bible versions. is because they were just picking it up from the Greek, gigantes. Right. Now, fortunately, the English Bibles have dropped rendering gibor or giborim as giants. They're not doing that. Uh, and that's a good thing because really gibor, giborim, it just means mighty. It's just a descriptive term. I have heard plenty of people refer to the giborim as if they're a people group, but there's no such thing. It just means might or mighty. And so gibor or giborim is a term that's, yes, it's used of Nephilim. Yes, it's used of angels. Yes, it's used of Nimrod. And it's also used of Boaz. It's used of some of David's soldiers. It's even used of God himself in Isaiah 9-6, right? El Gibor, the mighty God, right? So fortunately, they dropped that. But um, some English Bibles still render both Nephilim and Repha or Rephaim as giants. And so undiscerning English readers will just chase an English word around the Hebrew Bible. And they're saying, well, giants, 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 giants. It's all the same, right? So if there's pre-flood giants, and then I'm reading about giants post-flood, then they survived or they returned, or I don't, I can't explain it, but there they are. And, but that's just not the case, right? Nephilim is a word that appears in Genesis 6, 4, Numbers 13, 33, period, full stop. Uh, The 98% of other references that you're reading in certain english bibles to giants is to rephi or rephaim that's that's what it is and so then in order to make it sexy you have to invent this kind of a concept that rephaim is just a post-flood way to refer to nephilim but that just doesn't exist in the bible Uh, nephilim were strictly pre-flood hybrids uh, Rephaim are strictly post-flood humans. They're just good old-fashioned humans, and that's all they are. But, okay, this is where it gets a little complex because the, the, the word Repha is notoriously complicated. So the root word can be used to mean everything from healing to death or the dead. I mean, think about the range of usage there. Healing to death, I mean, it would seem like polar opposites, but that root word is used for both of them. And then it's used of a people group. Okay, so like in Ugaritic uh, texts, 
healers are sometimes referred to as refa, and then the dead are sometimes referred to as refa. So, for example, in the Eucharistic material, when a king or a hero died, they were referred to a dead king or hero. But after they've been dead for a while, then they're referred to as refaim or refa or rapun, you know, whatever their trans- way of pronouncing it was in that, those languages. And then they had uh, rituals about how you could um, summon the Rephaim and all this stuff. So that's why you have people um, coming up with these strange ideas about how the biblical Rephaim were uh, the living dead or, you know, one of these, these ghostly beings or something where it's just not there. So one very important thing is, is that, for instance, like I just did now, I'm going to the Ugaritic material in order to understand their point of view on their usage of a word, but I'm not going to take their pagan theology and stuff it into my biblical theology. <laughs> when they say that these Rephaim, who are really just dead kings and heroes, can be summoned, um, then we got a problem there. Because uh, outside the, uh, the medium, the Witch of Endor, w- which appears to have been a, a unique allowance by God, you don't have uh, anybody who's dead being summoned. I, I could see that if you t- attempted that, you would definitely have a demon showing up pretending that there's somebody they're not. Um, but you can't just go, well, because another culture that was pagan referred to this, then I have to accept their theology and jam it into my biblical theology. You can't be doing that. So then what do we know about Rephaim? Well, biblically, they are a large people group like say a clan or rather um, a nation or a tribe, right? And under whom um, are subgroups, like say tribe and then the clan, right? Or if you say nation and state or state and city. In other words, there were the Rephaim, but then they're, they made, they're made up of various subgroups. For instance, the Anakim, they're a Rephaim subgroup. And so we already talked about how Anakim are referred to as having been tall. So some Rephaim were tall, and I'm sure some weren't. And then you have to deal with what does it mean to be tall, and that's why we end up talking about Goliath and King Og. Right, yeah, and that's, you know, we were kind of keeping that for now. But so, I mean... Where do those stories then come from? Because I mean, like you, know, like you said, there's Nimrod. Uh, we obviously know of David and Goliath and King Og. I mean, were these like actual historical figures, or are they just kind of people that were written in for you know just to kind of continue with the whole giants after the flood, or you know how did that whole kind of thing work? I mean, I mean, obviously they're theirs, you know, but where did they come from? Yeah, now Nimrod, if that's even an actual name, it seems more more like a title, but whatever. Let's just go with Nimrod. I think the only reason his name gets mixed up into all of this is because he's referred to as a Gibor. Uh, We have no physical description of Nimrod, right? Right. But he is said to have been a Gibor. Oh, and Nephilim were Giborim, so therefore... Uh, because we're going to go all the way to number 1333, actually believe it, and actually incorporate it into our theology. Now we have to go all the way back to Genesis 6-4, claim that Gibor refers to being, quote-unquote, giant, 
Oh, and then we see that Nimrod's a Gibor, so he must have been a giant as well. Well, that's a tremendous mess right there. So the text is just telling us that Nimrod was a regular guy. He was a hunter, and then he became mighty, period, you know, full stop. And I know people try to trace him through um, various lineages that um, the surrounding ancient Near East cultures have about uh, lists of kings and stuff. But that's a separate issue. Uh, the, the point, the take home point for us is that he is referred to having become a Gibor. He became mighty. That's it. You know, he ended up establishing kingdoms and cities and all that. Whereas I've read extremely elaborate uh, neo-theo sci-fi tall tales. For example, I debated uh, T.J. Stedman and he has this scenario where Nimrod was conducting occult rituals whereby he was having people get possessed by the spirits of Nephilim and those people came to be referred to as Rephaim. It's like, dude... I don't know where he's getting that stuff, but it ain't the Bible. I tell you that much uh, right now. It's very simple. Um, so then, okay, there's Nimrod. Now, how about um, Goliath and Og? Well, the first thing to point out is they were not Nephilim. They were Rephaim. And again, that's something I've been told a hundred times. Well, Goliath was in the field. You know, Og was in the field. No. They're both referred to as Rephi or Rephi of the Rephaim people. That's number one. Og, we don't have a physical description of him. I mean, I debated Gary Wayne just a couple weeks ago, and I asked him, well, how do you know how tall um, Og was? Because Wayne referred to him as a giant, and he admitted, we don't know how tall he was. Right. So I said, well, then you can't call him a giant anymore. But he insisted. He's still going to call him a giant, even though he admits we don't know how tall he was. Uh, Go reckon. But, you know, what he says as well is because his bed is described as having been like 13 feet long. Hmm. And we ended up having a discussion about that. I'll give it to you very quickly. So, yeah, if you measured my bed, you subtract a foot, you'd get a good idea of how tall I am. But you also think I was five times wider than I actually am, you know. <laughs> yeah. uh, and, and besides, I'm just a regular modern day guy. I'm not an ancient sovereign. Right. I don't have a kingdom around me and luxuries and who knows who sharing his bed, you know, his harem. I don't know. I don't know. I just know that a king lives, lives a more lavish lifestyle than I do. So it's not appropriate to take my subjective experience and apply it to King Og. And besides which, I pointed out to Wayne that um, in a ziggurat, right, a a step pyramid uh, called Emenenki, uh, a bed of those same dimensions as Og's was found, and it's not a bed that someone slept on, it's a ritual object. It's kind of like an altar where supposed gods and alleged goddesses mated. That's what that was about. It wasn't like something he went to sleep in. Sure. So even there, you see what I'm doing is on the one level, I'm saying, let's admit we don't know how tall he was. But if you want to speculate about his height, let's admit we're speculating. 
then let's point out that we can't really apply our experience to him. Right. And then on top of it, you have the archaeology to deal with, which is that we have a pretty good idea what was meant by bed and it was nothing to be slept on, okay? So now we come to Goliath. Incidentally, Goliath is the one of the two specific heights we're told in the Bible. I mean, do you realize that? We're only told two specific heights. Right. So let's look at the other one first. It's an Egyptian man who was like 7'5". Oh, okay. Okay. Um, and uh, so Goliath, the issue is there's a the discrepancy amongst manuscripts about his height. And this is something I discussed with Gary Wayne. Uh, because he was opting for the taller range of Goliath, which would be just shy of 10 feet. Okay. And Gary Wayne prefers to bump it up even more artificially because he says Goliath might have been a king. And so a royal cubit might have been applied to him. And a royal cubit is longer than a regular cubit. So that's what kind of makes me nervous is you're having to insert two assertions just to make him a little taller because it fits your neo-theo sci-fi needs he might have been a king we don't know that and so a royal cubit might have been applied to him we don't know that either right so he wants him even taller than 10 feet okay where i was saying well wait a minute um that's relying on the masoretic text but earlier manuscripts from the septuagint and earlier manuscripts from the Dead Sea Scrolls and earlier writings of Flavius Josephus all agree that Goliath was just shy of seven feet. Hmm. Okay. And again, remember what we're talking about. We're talking about guys who are like five foot or five three. Sure. Uh, to them, a guy that's just shy of seven feet. Yeah. That would still be impressive as if that even matters, by the way, because keep in mind, now we have to plug our brains into stop to not no longer think in terms of that being unusually tall has something to do with uh, being a hybrid because right. we don't know how tall Nephilim were. Incidentally, I asked Gary Wayne how he knew or whether he knew how tall Nephilim were because he calls them giants and he admitted he doesn't know how tall they were. But he's going to insist on calling them giants because it just fits into what he's doing. There's no reason um, behind that. And so, so what if Goliath was taller than usual? That has nothing to do with it. And it's just mentioned in the text. The point about Goliath was that he was a champion, so an experienced warrior, and he was challenging Israel. That was really the point. But uh, maybe I can hear somebody, okay, yeah, oh, but if you read the description of all the equipment Goliath had, he had to be a quote unquote giant. Make sure you don't ask me to define that term. He had yeah. to be a giant because he's carrying around and using all this really heavy equipment. Okay. But remember in the text, there's a guy helping him out with all that equipment. He had a shield bearer. He had a guy out there helping him with all that stuff. Um, moreover, Remember the Egyptian man who's 7'5"? Right. Well, he was specifically said to have had a spear as big as the weight weaver's beam. 
Well, that's the same description as the one that Goliath had. Hmm. Now, the thing about the Egyptian is that one of David's soldiers engaged him in hand-to-hand combat, took that spear away from him, and killed him with his own spear. So you have a regular guy having no problem wielding such a spear in hand-to-hand combat. So there's no reason to think Goliath was unusually tall just because he had a thick spear or a heavy spear. And not to mention, okay, mentioning, you can get on any video channel any day. Just look up uh, strongman or weightlifting competitions. You're going to see guys that are just around six feet tall lifting a thousand pounds. Yeah. 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 Yeah, That makes sense. Yeah, it's true. I mean, yeah, I guess it's kind of an odd thing. I mean, for a lot of people that just kind of hear the stories over the years that don't actually dive into it a lot deeper, which obviously I'll, I would say 99.9998% of the people don't do yeah. um, for, for, you know, for, for the rest of us, you know, myself included, you, you just hear these stories and, and you're just like, wow, man, there was all these giants back in the day, you know, whatever. And even in some of the emails that we had back and forth with each other, you, you get a lot of stories from other people that would say like, they see all these bones of giants or they have pictures of giants. And um, like we even spoke about that this is like a really big theory that the smithsonian actually goes out and collects bones and hides them um you know i have no doubt that the smithsonian hides a lot of things from a lot of people but that's kind of like one of the bigger ones that you hear um and it's just kind of odd that you that you have like pictures of i mean like old pictures of guys that that are standing what's supposed to be like next to giants and they're really tall and stuff but Mm -hmm. i mean that just kind of it's just odd. I mean, it's, you have people that hear the stories, but then they see pictures like that and they think, man, well, it must be true. You know, there's, there's giants around the world hidden like underground or whatever. Could that be bones from pre-flood? Maybe, but you know, as you laid out, obviously there wouldn't be anything after the flood. I mean, not that we could find or read anywhere. Um, So it's just kind of an odd thing how that whole story comes about that, that they find bones and stuff like that. Yeah. So, so the boy, there's a lot to think about right there. So for one, let me just take a step back. And remember I said, I could think of five, six definitions or usages of the word giant. So really quickly, it could be a metaphor, right? Like, Oh, Elon Musk is a giant of business. Well, right. okay. We, we understand that. Uh, then it generally uh, the modern usage is something subjective about unusual height but how unusual well some people mean a few inches taller than average some people means a few feet taller than average some people mean entire body lengths taller than average so that's like three different usages right there and then like i mentioned before biblically it could refer to nephilim it could refer to um, rephaim so that's why i'm constantly asking people what do you mean by the word giant and usually they're taken aback like come on everybody knows what it means yeah but i don't know how you're using it right right. and now if actually if you pay attention henceforth when you run across an article or a book or a video i bet 99 percent of the time you'll end up noticing hey this person is saying giant 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 and they're not bothering to define what they mean and they're using it to mean different things 
and they're not telling their audience. Now I mean that unusually tall. Now I'm referring to Nephilim. Now I'm referring to Rephaim. You know, they're jumping back and forth. And uh, I bet you'll notice that now. So then could it be that um, um, if there's actual bones that have been found that are actually human or humanoid, because that's another issue. Um, I have to throw this in. One of the discussions I had with Gary Wayne is that he says, well, Josephus says that in his day, the bones of Raphael were still around and being displayed and they were very, very large. Okay. And I said, well, but how do we know what they were? Right. I mean, uh, Josephus wasn't an anatomist. How did he tell the difference? Because we're not talking like full skeletons here. We're talking about bones, right? right? How do we know if he was looking at the bone of a dinosaur or a pachyderm or a whale? I mean, we don't know. And neither did he, is my point. He was right. just showing bones and told what they were. Well, how did those people know what they were? Uh, but maybe... Hey, you know, it's funny because after I talk about this stuff, and, and I think that you've discerned that I'm hitting this on various levels, right? I'm thinking about this at various levels. Uh, and then people end up hearing that I'm denying, denying, denying. I'm really not. Who would deny that people that are unusually tall have existed? Who would deny that? <laughs> it's, it's a non-issue. And if Og was 13 feet tall, by the way, good for him. What do I care? It's a non-issue to me. I'm just saying, let's be honest about the data we have and what we're doing with it. So then if it turns out somehow that Nephilim were unusually tall, again, good for them. It's, it's a non-issue for me. It's just that with the information we have right now, nobody can really tell you that. So if you say, well, those are Nephilim bones. My first question is, how do you know? We have no reliable physical description of them. How could you then say, well, those must be it? Right. Well, because the Bible refers to giants. I've heard that a hundred times. And then you have to go down the road of what does giant mean? It comes from the Greek gigantes. It's just rendering words. It's not telling you anything about height. You know, you have to go down that road. And then, um, yeah, I remember the email exchange when I was saying the issue of the Smithsonian cover-up is, can somebody just give me something concrete? Because inevitably... It's well, but I heard so-and-so say that they heard so-and-so who heard so-and-so say that they heard so-and-so say, and it's always just one tall tale after the other one. And nobody can actually give any concrete evidence except that. Okay, now in my mind, part of this issue is sociological or anthropological in that we have to admit that part of it is People do tell tall tales. Right. This just—I'm not saying that explains everything. I'm just saying, again, I'm thinking on multiple levels. That's one of the things we have to consider. Like the famous fish story. Every time the guy tells a story about the fish he caught, it's bigger and bigger and bigger, right? So, right. if you're an, if you're a, a king and you're uh, funding my expedition to a foreign land and I come back, I better have something juicy to tell you. <laughs> Especially if I want more funding for another trip. Right. So if I got beaten, I got defeated. Hey, guess what? I was defeated by giants, you know. Or if I was victorious, I conquered giants. You might as well, right? Yeah. What else are you going to say? Oh, 
I guess we saw a different kind of chimp uh, that they have over there, slightly different than we have over here. Not very exciting. I'm sorry, your your Majesty. You know, uh, <laughs> um, yeah. part of it is this is a documented fact that yes, a lot of uh, bones that have been found after close examination by experts, they do turn out to be a whale pachyderm or dinosaur or something. That that's well known, and. Um, then you have, here's what I do think the Smithsonian was up to. The late 1800s and the early 1900s seem to have been a time where some of these anthropological and paleontologists were in, imposing some of their racism into what was being found, particularly in North America. Right, so you have an issue of not wanting to give too much credit to Native Americans and maybe other Native peoples around the world, right? Like showing up and saying, hey, how could these uh, savages have built these megalithic structures? You know, oh, there's no way they could have done it. Oh, simpletons, you know. Uh, it must have been whatever, you know, aliens, gods, angels, demons, and by the way, sometimes it was the natives themselves saying, hey, we didn't build this. It was built by fill in the blank, whoever it was before us. Right. Or we don't know. But then so it seems to me that's what you will actually find in Smithsonian documents is that they were um, not wanting to give the natives too much credit or or um, admit they've been in certain lands as long as they claim that they had. So, hey, we found these uh, burial sites and now we're going to whisk them away. That, I think, is you could probably make a much better case for something like that. Again, it's not sci-fi. It's not very exciting. But that, I think, is a fair enough thing that you would be able to conclude from the kind of things that they were doing back in the day. But that, uh, you know, they're, that they're digging up the uh, bones of humanoid beings that were 13, 20 or more feet tall, that just doesn't exist, you know. You'll find that uh, there were natives uh, found buried that might have been around seven feet or so, maybe eight feet uh, is the claim. And okay, that's even unusually tall for our day, but certainly not impossible. And it, it is known, especially if you go up to the Nor Norwegian type areas, uh, the Northern European countries, you got some tall guys up there. Right. And, and in fact, incidentally, because I'm told so very often, well, Native Americans claim that they interacted with giants. So there you go. They're not only literally accurate, they're infallible. Well, but to me, if they're telling me that they were interacting with white, red-haired giants, it's a cultural memory of encountering Vikings, in my mind, who to them would have been very unusual, white-skinned, red-haired, and unusually tall. Yeah, I could see that turning into some wild stories. Oh, and incidentally, I'm going <laughs> to throw in all this stuff at you. Throw in one more thing. Uh, the issue of six fingers and six toes, right? You probably heard that one. That's a Nephilim trait. Uh, there you have it. So Native Americans tell stories about that and how they go how to show that they have five fingers instead of six and uh, Oprah Winfrey and whatever, man, all this stuff. 
okay, there's only one single reference in the Bible about having extra digits, and it's a refa. It's not a nephil. So even there, sorry, I'm not sorry, actually. Even something as simple as that, no, you're not going to get that from the Bible. You're going to have to mis- misunderstand the Bible in order to end up with that, that sort of a claim that it's a Nephilim trait. It's just not. Yeah, it's you definitely hear all these kinds of things associated. And it's it sucks, right? Because we all want to believe that there's something crazy out there going on and stuff like that. And obviously we hear the stories of bones being found and all that stuff, which, I mean, heck, I... I want to believe it too. Just you know, but it's it's uh, it's it's definitely interesting to like think that, that there's all these kinds of, or that there were all these kinds of giants roaming the earth and and things like that. They were actually like not from the earth, you know. They weren't just you know, like you said, certain individuals who were just a little taller than usual, or you know, because the the people at that time were a lot shorter to them. It just seemed like they were like really out there, but. You know, it's, you know, like everything you laid out, obviously it doesn't, it doesn't say it is what it, what everybody says it was. So <laughs> it's, a, it's unfortunate for a lot of people, um, you know, they, they grew up hearing the stories and, you know, they want to believe in all these things and they're into it. But, you know, like you said, we don't, we just don't have any kind of like concrete proof of anything. Um, well, um, I'll give you a couple more things to think about. So one is, I'm always told that um, newspapers from the late 1800s or early 1900s had a lot of reports about giants being found. Okay, for one, fake news is not a new phenomena. Okay, for two, a newspaper report by definition is what it is. It's a momentary thing. So-and-so says they found so-and-so end of story because it's a newspaper it's a daily you're not going to have continuing coverage it's just here's what this guy claims he found or we sent a reporter and he saw some bones okay again the issue is uh was there any follow-up and i actually wrote okay so i wrote a book called um one of them nephilim and giants believe it or not ancient and neo theo sci-fi tall tales where I get into this stuff, the newspaper thing, the Smithsonian thing, and then um, I try to follow up as much as possible on those finds that did have somebody who was qualified researching them. I mean, I wrote to museums that supposedly have these skeletons. I did everything. I even wrote to the Smithsonian. I did everything I possibly could. Um, so the issue is uh, I invite you to do what I do. Don't listen to me. If you don't want to, don't take a single word that I'm saying about this stuff. Here's what you do. When people tell you that the Smithsonian is involved in this huge cover-up, when they tell you that giants, uh, humanoid bones have been found and they must be Nephilim, when they tell you all this stuff, much less the, the giant of Kandahar, one of my favorites, hey. um, which is just a straight up internet hoax, by the way. All you have to do is ask questions, right? Okay, hey, uh, oh, look at this photograph of giant bones that were found. Here's what you ask, where is that? They're not gonna know. 99% of the time, they won't have a clue. 
or, oh, this Smithsonian is involved in this cover-up. Okay, what makes you think that? Well, so-and-so told me that, so-and-so told me that, so-and-so. Or uh, the Kandahar Giant, what evidence is there besides a couple of anonymous guys making vague claims about generic regions and popularized by two unreliable guys, sorry, but uh, Ellie Marzulli and Steve Quayle, who make a living off of this stuff. What is there besides that? Uh, so in other words, forget me, just ask those kind of questions. How do you know and where is that? And 99% won't have a single clue. They'll just tell you that, well, I heard it from somebody who heard it from somebody who heard it from somebody. And that'll be it. I mean, I've experienced this hundreds of times, literally. Yeah. Yeah, it's a, it's a shame. It's, you know, like I said, we'd all like to believe in such, but, like, you know, it's, we just need... Like, just like freaking Bigfoot and stuff, everybody says it's out there, but we don't have no bodies, or we just need to find one that somebody's shot or something, um, you know, for us to actually have some kind of proof. But um, I mean, obviously, you don't get any kind of invitations to go speak with, with other people uh, nope. about this kind of stuff. And I understand why. <laughs> now I understand why. Yeah. And yeah. in fact, <laughs> I give Gary Wayne a ton of credit just for being willing to debate it. Because if you think about it, um, how many of the top pop researchers have ever debated anybody on any of their claims? Ever. I can only think of Gary Wayne and TJ Stedman. And of course, TJ Stedman's uh, nowhere near as popular as Gary Wayne. So besides those two, I can't think of a single one who has ever debated anybody on any of this stuff. Maybe they have. I'm just saying I'm not aware of it. And I've been in these circles for years and years and years and years. Right. And I can also tell you, having reached out to some of these people, they do not want to even discuss it if they get a wind that you're actually going to challenge them on something. They don't want to say a single more word to you, period, full stop, leave us alone. And that's it. And I think it's incumbent upon us to reach out to these people and ask them, well, hey, how come every time I hear you on a program, you're just being interviewed. So you have a platform to just say whatever you want unchallenged and no one ever, you're not, you never put yourself into the situation where you're going to have to take, uh, be accountable for your claims or that somebody could challenge you. How come that never happens? I mean, never. Right. It's odd. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it is quite unfortunate. I mean, you know, and then they get, backed by you know some large programs and, and yeah. there's a lot of stuff going on and they don't want to get challenged like you said and, and it sucks because um you know they have a giant platform a lot of people listen to them and they have you know they sell a lot of books and stuff and um that's i guess that's kind of where the the belief comes in and all this you know information that um it's not, you know, re- refuted. So everybody just kind of goes along with it. And, and, you know, we don't get anything else besides that. But um, I mean, I have personally witnessed people that didn't exist online, period. All of a sudden, they publish a book that goes along with the post-flood Nephilim narrative, and they are everywhere. They're presenting lectures, they're being interviewed, they're on TV shows, they're absolutely everywhere overnight. I've seen it. Yeah. 
I've seen it. And, and so, for example, my book, Nephilim and Giants, as per pop researchers, this is the subtitle, okay? A comprehensive consideration of the claims of I.D.E. Thomas, Chuck Missler, Dante Fortson, Gilbert, uh, Derek Gilbert, Brian Gadawa, Patrick Heron, Thomas Horn, Ken Johnson, L.A. Marzulli, Josh Peck, C.K. Quarterman, Steve Quayle, Rob Skiba, God bless him, uh, rest in peace, Gary Wayne, Jim Wilhelmson, et al., meaning there's a bunch more I didn't mention. So I've researched each of those people enough to write a book about them. And inevitably, the reply I get from their fans is like, oh, you, you're not well-researched in this area. You haven't watched their videos. You haven't read their books. Oh, you haven't read the brand new book that was published five minutes ago by some guy that just made it online. It's like, what else do I need to know? I mean, seriously, how much more do I have to research in order to just get somebody to accept an invitation to have a discussion with them? (laughs) That's all I want. I mean, is that too much to ask? God bless Gary Wayne, because he did it. And TJ Stedman, but... I can tell you from experience, uh, other people just, they'll shut you down and they don't want nothing to do with being challenged, period. Yeah. Yeah, I get I get it. I guess it's unfortunate, but... It's, uh, it's tragic, actually. It's tragic. Because if you get, just take a, a video platform like YouTube, just go and type in Christian debates. You'll see thousands of Christians debating thousands of topics. You're not going to find any debates about this stuff except with me and tj stedman me and gary wayne and then uh, i guess the occasional one uh i've heard an interesting one with um oh uh, a guy that calls himself nephilim free and some secular researcher but it wasn't one of the top pop researchers it wasn't any of them you won't find that period how come we can debate every other topic and people are held accountable for what they're saying, but here, no. And then you have their hordes of, believe me, I'm speaking from experience. Then you have the hordes of their yes men fanboys. And you'll pardon me for that, but I think it just gets the idea across who, oh, you challenge my guy? I'm going to show you a thing or two. <laughs> and I've gotten comments and emails, believe me. Right. Um, so that's something else to deal with. Yeah, that's unfortunate. I mean, the internet's an unforgiving place. Uh, <laughs> it's uh, whenever you go against you know somebody's guy or whatever, it's yeah. it's not it's not a good luck. <laughs> it's not a good luck. Yeah, no, it's not. Uh, well, sir, um, as we kind of wind down here, um, can you kind of I guess do you have any new books that are coming out shortly, or do you have anything kind of in the works for anything else? Usually, I have at least one book if not two I'm working on. So I'm in the middle of a series, which is very different than this. It's a series that's reviewing movies that have UFO or alien themes. Nice. And, and I've written quite a few movie review books, uh, but I'm not talking about like the plot and the acting and all this stuff. I really don't care about I'm talking about the worldview philosophy behind the, the plot, right? The message that's being told to us. So that's been fun for me, actually, to write uh, those sort of books. And right now, just this week, I finished one that's really just a survey about historically who took which view of the flood. Was it local or was it global? 
And so it'll be like literally centuries worth of examples of me just saying, this person took this view, this person took this view, that's it. That's all I'm doing. It's just a research-based book. Book, And then the next one, the volume two of that one will be um, what different Bible commentaries have to say about the flood. And again, ranging from the, I don't know, early 1500s to closer to the modern day. So that's been an interesting project. Right. And so would the best place to get the books be your website? Do you sell them on the website or is that just only on Amazon? They're on Amazon, but the way I made my website, uh, truefreethinker.com, is just so once you go there, you can get anywhere else you want to. You'll, you'll find my YouTube channel through there. You'll find my Amazon page through there. You'll find everything because I made it user-friendly. For sure. Okay. Yeah. And so that uh, website, again, is truefreethinker.com. Um, and the name of the YouTube channel is that Kenemy. Yeah, it's one of those YouTube channels where the URL doesn't really show you a name. Right, it's right. like a bunch of weird numbers and letters. <laughs> but yeah, if you just look up Kenemy, you'll you'll find uh, stuff on there. And then thanks uh, by the way for mentioning that. Yeah. No, yeah, I, I had seen it. Um, I was going through some of your old videos and such uh, prior to this, so I'm just trying to get as much information as I can before I step on a show, and hopefully sure. I don't, don't make too much of a fool of myself. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yeah, it's, so that's uh, Twitter as well. You have a Facebook. Um, so yep, those are up and running those, as well. Yep, all those. <laughs> yeah, so we'll have all of them linked down below in the show notes for everybody. Uh, links to the books as well, uh, the website and on Amazon, um, YouTube channel and everything. So everybody can go ahead and hop on and take a look. Um, sir, I really appreciate your time. Um, I, I know it, it was kind of a while before we actually got on together, but we finally had it. Uh, we finally got it done and hopefully we can have you back on as well in the future for some other topics. Um, not just about this, you know, this topic as well, but um, we can go ahead and discuss other books as well. Um, sure. So. And you know what? I, I appreciated the interaction because you ended up asking some very important questions and making some really insightful points as well. So, and also for just allowing me a platform uh, to kind of do what I crit criticize other people kind of being unchallenged, but Hey, if somebody contacts you and they want to have a debate on your channel, I'm definitely open for it. No problem. Yeah, we'll definitely stir the pot. <laughs> with it. That's kind of what we do. So we'll we'll definitely have, um, I'm sure, some emails about it. And, and then, you know, anybody asking questions and such, we can we can go ahead and pass those along. And then yes, please do so. See what happens from there. But um, yeah, I really appreciate it, sir. Um, I hope you have a great holiday here coming up uh, for Christmas and, and the New Year's. And if we don't speak before then, um, stay safe and everything. Um, uh, everybody else, I really appreciate you guys stopping in. Like we yeah. mentioned before, um, if you guys are checking us out on YouTube, like a few of you were, um, and you're not already a subscriber, please consider hitting that subscribe button. As you know, um, turn on that bell icon and give us a thumbs up. It'll really help us out. Uh, if you guys are checking us out, uh, and you want to check us out on the go, as I mentioned before, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, as well as iHeartRadio at Truth Defender Podcast. Uh, we'll have all the links to social media down below, as well as the email address. You guys can shoot us an email if you have any questions for myself or our guests. If you have any guests or topic recommendations, uh, you can shoot us that email over to thetruthdefender1776 at gmail.com. Uh, I'll have all the links in the show notes down below. Everybody, I really appreciate your time. I really appreciate you guys stopping in for another episode. Um, if we don't, actually, we will be seeing you guys on the 13th as well. We'll have another show set up and running for you guys. Um, 
we will actually be talking with, let me get the name here again. I always forget, unfortunate. Uh, Mike Ricksecker. Um, so he'll be coming up on the 13th as well. We'll be discussing the Men in Black, uh, which was a great kind of jump off from our last guest uh, with um, Raymond Zemanski as well, who was actually the engineer that worked at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base, who had his experience with the Men in Black as well. Uh, so that'll be coming up as well. Uh, you guys stay tuned for that. It'll be on the 13th of December. Um, so you guys take it easy out there. Everybody stay safe, stay blessed, and most of all, stay frosty.